Do you love anime, gaming, movies, and discovering how your favorite pop culture affects everything you do? Then join us on Crunchyroll Presents The Anime Effect. I'm Nick Friedman. I'm Lee Alec Murray. And I'm Leah President. Every week you can listen in while we break down the latest pop culture news and dish on what new releases we can't get enough of. Whether you love movies, I'm going to tell you all about the uh, hopeful 4K re-release of Tron Legacy that happens. (laughs) (laughs) I'm right there with you. Or music. The music in this show is absolutely incredible. Or anime. And under this mask is another mask. (laughs) You can discover your new favorites right here on The Anime Effect. Listen every Friday, wherever you get your podcasts, and watch full video episodes on Crunchyroll or on the Crunchyroll YouTube channel. Hello, controller. Are you ready to begin? All engines are started. That looks really good. So we'd like it to uh, stir up your cryo tank. Oh, wow, it's going up so slowly. The state of the space flyer. During the flight, he's being observed with the help of radio, telemetric, and television devices. Station, this is Houston. Are you ready for the event? Yes, I'm all set, yeah. Hello and welcome to Space Boffins in partnership with Naked Scientists. This month's podcast is a Space Boffins special with the man whose voice was the first to be heard from the surface of the moon when Apollo 11 made its historic landing. Contact light. Okay, engine stop. Houston, uh, Tranquility Base here. The Eagle has landed. Roger, Twink. Tranquility, we copy you on the ground. You got a bunch of guys about to turn blue. We're breathing again. Thanks a lot. It was almost inevitable that Edwin, or Buzz Aldrin, would aim sky high. His father was an aviation pioneer, and his mother's maiden name was, believe it or not, Moon. After graduating from West Point Military Academy, Buzz became a fighter pilot for the United States Air Force and eventually returned to education to gain a doctorate in astronautics from MIT. He developed manned space rendezvous techniques that were later used on NASA missions and earned him the nickname Dr. Rendezvous among astronauts. He was selected onto the NASA astronaut program in the early 60s and flew in the Gemini 12 mission with Jim Lovell. The Gemini mission set the foundation for the Apollo program, and on July the 20th, 1969, alongside Neil Armstrong, he became one of the first human beings to walk on the moon. That's one small step for man, one giant leap for mankind. Magnificent desolation. Since that famous description, it's fair to say that this is a man who has not rested on his lunar laurels. He patented his design for a permanent space station in 1993, has co-written science fiction novels and children's books, written memoirs, been to the North Pole, launched the Share Space Foundation to prioritise space, and did the first commercially available zero-gravity flight in the United States. This is Buzz at the launch of the Google Lunar X Prize, reading the plaque that each competition entry will carry when their commercial spacecraft lands on the moon. We Apollo astronauts congratulate the winner of the Google Lunar X Prize. 
May this plaque placed on the surface of the moon by this intrepid craft and its team serve as a welcoming beacon to future generations of lunar explorers. This spacecraft returns in the spirit of our journeys of the 20th century in peace and with hope for all mankind. Last year, the Florida Institute of Technology set up the Buzz Aldrin Space Institute with Aldrin as a senior advisor. And recently, he's been in the UK promoting his long-held plans for Mars. Now 86 years old, I met up with him at the University of Cambridge shortly before he gave a talk on Mars to an audience which included Professor Stephen Hawking. Buzz wore jeans, striped red braces, a Destination Mars t-shirt, jacket and multiple items of jewellery on his lapels, fingers and wrists. Now, Buzz doesn't always like revisiting the past in interviews. He's a visionary, always looking ahead. So we concentrated on the future, beginning with a sneaky reference to his past, however, when I asked him what he thought of the European Space Agency Director General's idea for a permanent lunar base. Well, I would like very much, when I heard that, we call it a moon village, I would like uh, very much to know what uh, they had in mind for that, because by that time I had uh, been experimenting with different uh, configurations that would enable uh, growth by adding more to something. It wasn't just, this is a base, this is here. You, you need to expand it. And there, there are different nations that are part of this, and some are ahead of others. But there's usually some command area. And I knew that with the U.S. liking to define what that would be, because we wanted to be able to do a very similar thing at Mars. Now, there were not, as I could see, other nations trying to define what we want on the moon, and they would do that on Mars or the other way around. Uh, Whatever it was, we needed to learn how to put it together. What was its configuration, and what role would the U.S play. Well, we had decided not to expend major, major funds at the moon and not compete. This this is my, not compete with any other nations, but play a role of bringing them together because we're not competing. We're doing things to help all of them on an equal basis. So I was quite curious to know what Europe wanted to do in the way of a moon village. And uh, I still don't have much of a definition of what that is. Uh, It's more than just Isis village. It's to involve other people. Well, how you do that gets into diplomacy, it gets into knowing which nations work together, uh, and how does the U.S. play a a role separate from the other 
four nations that are major participants, uh, Russia, China, Europe, and, and Japan. Well, that international cooperation is, is key, really, and particularly with, with Mars. There's mm. the ExoMars mission that, that is about to launch, which involves... A, it's ExoMars, a joint Russia-European mission. They were mm. originally going to be completely co, mm. uh, a co-Europe NASA production until they had to pull out. You, in a way, seemed ahead of your time, because... I last interviewed you in the mid-90s, and you were, Mars, this is what we ought to do, is go to Mars. This is it, we ought to go to Mars. And it feels as though it's taken a long time for NASA to catch up with you in terms of that. Are you glad, though, it's finally... Well, I, I've had to make some adjustments. I felt I needed to face reality in, in how things would happen in some sort of a communal and at first I thought, well, to have U.S. involvement, perhaps we should have one uh, central module and then have things grow out from that. And maybe they should be inflatable. Maybe they should be similar, but if the U.S. were to want to put something there, then we were sort of obligated to be the ones to build it. And uh, I didn't see that that was going to be our role. We wanted to design. So uh, having had a lot of experience with Buckminster Fuller and his geometric figures, and uh, I, I learned how to really appreciate what you could get from triangles by expanding them uh, a little bit more than squares. You have a square, and it'll go this way because the joints just allow it. But the triangle can't do that. Very rigid, won't move. So I felt like uh, arranging something and then seeing how it could expand outward using the same and I found that uh, it was quite simple to take a triangle and then make three more triangles just like it and and that ended up giving you six different directions going outward That sounds very similar to the um, what they use in the film The Martian Actually, it does. It does. I don't know if you've seen the film. I saw the movie and I didn't see triangles there. No, it just reminded because it had little um, corridors sort of going on. Well, sure, the space station. So it should be like that, but with triangles. No, but their 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 habitat was this way. Sort of triangular. Okay, but that isn't the way to make habitat. This way. So actually, more like a pyramid. No, more like a, a, a cylinder, mm-hmm. because now you can put floors in it, and the walls are curved. If you go like this, the floor is curved, and the sides are. And so to make things like a wall uh, or a floor, you have to make it horizontal, and the ceiling, it, it just is not as efficient a use. And, and if you have something like this, and if it's inflatable, then you can't have ports around. But if it's vertical, you can put attached points around. 
and you can join them together. I love the way you've given this so much thought. I ought to explain that sometimes the little clicks that we're hearing are from your rings. You've got two quite chunky rings on one hand and three on the other. That's what you hear there. Ah, and you've got bracelets with bars on one of them. And are these all related to space, by the way, because you're wearing a Destination Mars T-shirt? No, that's a West Point class ring. And that's MIT, where I got my doctor's degree. That's a a ring that my grandfather had. Uh, This fancy one here was given to me by Muhammad Ali and his people. It's got a big diamond in it. It it has my name on it and his name on the other side. Now, this was just a very typical symbol, not of Turkey, not of... uh, other Islamic... Because it's a crescent, crescent moon with diamonds and, and a star. And a star. But having gone to the moon and written a story about travel between stars, it became quite appropriate to different parts of my past and history. Uh, but the star is really not as significant anymore, so I uh, need to round that off and put a ruby in it for uh, Mars... Symbolism uh, is catchy. Now I'm working with Florida Tech and the Buzz Aldrin Space Institute, so uh, I may create my own Florida Tech-type ring. It'll look sort of, but it'll be changed. You're listening to Space Boffins in partnership with The Naked Scientists, with me, Sue Nelson, and our very special podcast guest, astronaut... Hello, Greer Jackson here. I just wanted to interrupt and tell you what exciting things I have in store for the Naked Astronomy podcast this month. Take a listen to this. Scientists are calling this a revolution in the world of cosmology. It's a gravitational wave, of course. Join me, Greer Jackson, on Naked Astronomy to hear how this elusive phenomenon is making waves. It's available on most podcasting platforms or from nakedscientists.com slash astronomy. You can find Space Boffins on Twitter and Facebook, so look out for pictures of Buzz Aldrin's rings on his fingers and you can see that one from Muhammad Ali for yourself. But before you do, here's the rest of that interview with the legendary Gemini 12 and Apollo 11 astronaut. I love the way that you're still looking forward to what's to come with, with our space. It's because at, one po- at points during the last 10, 20 years, with budgets being cut, it's not looked as promising as it does now, actually. Yeah, well, let me just add a few things, right? left Apollo, I uh, wanted to stay with exploration, and I thought tourism is one way, but doing some maneuvering between the Earth and and the Moon and, and continuing in that area, you could have uh, orbits that would swing by the Earth and go out to something at the Moon and sort of come back and uh, then the moon wouldn't be in the same place because it moves, but that's once a month, so you could do something else, and then it would come back. And and this is sort of out and back, and it's a cycle, in a way, 
Uh, I'm not sure they called it a cycle then. That's something that came out later when uh, I, I was explaining what I was doing to NASA and they were, weren't interested. Now, they were interested in taking somebody from the Earth and putting them on the moon. That wasn't my purpose. It was to swing by and let people see in a trip not just round Earth, but to go and go by the moon and come back again. The Russians experimented with that, but never made it uh, a manned flight. It looked like they might, and now they'd like to sell them, but the price is too high and they're no takers. That evolved into Mars after uh, NASA was not that interested in it. And a very prominent person, he was ahead of NASA when we went to the moon, suggested that I uh, use my bending of orbits and apply it to Mars, Earth and Mars. And that was the beginning of uh, cycling orbits some people wanted to call it an up escalator, going up the Mars and the down. Well, Buckminster Fuller taught me that in space, there's not really an up and down. There's an out, and then there's a back, depending on where your home is. So we go outbound on things and we come inbound. But that was an example, I think, of somebody who had a competing way of doing things, and so they chose to label my system up escalator, and, and it wasn't very complimentary. Neither was Dr. Rendezvous. But when new ideas are brought out, it breaks, it rocks the boat. And when I did come up with these cycling orbits, the person who suggested I do it was writing a major study of the future. And I think to this day it's one of the better studies because it covered so, so many different things. And he alluded to my cycling orbits between... But it didn't gather favor. It wasn't well understood. Purdue University had a professor that was at JPL when they evaluated it. So that brought about a uh, an association of me with the professor and his graduate students who then came up with uh, some improvements. Uh, if, if you can't get this sort of a pathway in one cycle, and the cycle of going Earth to Mars is when Earth catches up to Mars, the next time it happens, Earth's going around twice, Mars going around once, and a little bit more, uh, 26 months. And those are the optimum times. And if you have one that can do that once, and it's the only one, and as high velocities, maybe at Mars, that you just as soon not have to deal with either going or coming. It's pretty logical. You got to do something different 
So you go to every other period. At first I thought, wow, that's brilliant. But there isn't any way out other than to do that. And uh, that came up to be much, much better. And in a sen- essentially, we're using that today, hopefully with a few fine points that I pointed out that would make it more um, adaptable. But that is a system that um, delivers people from Earth to Mars. If you want to bring them back, you have to use another one in addition to the two outbound. And uh, and that makes it more complex. And I'd gone through arguments myself about uh, people there, then it's empty, people there, it's empty. People. I didn't think we wanted to do that in the future. It didn't get us very far in, in Apollo. Eventually got canceled. But going to Mars is something that people would think of amounting occupancy, amounting population there. If you had the chance tomorrow to no. go to Mars, would you would you go? No. You surprise me. Why not? I'm more valuable back here. Now I won't be alive when they do that. But you can get a lot of people to go there who are outdoorsmen or they like to dig in rocks to look for a little amoeba or study the rocks and the craters. Or they're just plain outdoorsmen. But that's not me. Um, I want to be original about something and it's pretty hard to do that there. And... uh, of course, there are only two sides to it. Uh, you either don't go, or you go there and you stay there. I really believe that. Now, it may not work, but I'm trying very hard to introduce things and phrase them in ways that when the time comes, after you know you're going to land there, and you can land and not do what everyone else does, come back at the first opportunity. They want to show that they can do that. And it's challenging, because sometimes you have to make fuel after you get there. And uh, you have to have other vehicles, and everything sort of has to go. If you take the approach that i got to get everything done that I can from Earth, then I'm going to go, because their time is very precious, being in orbit. And if they can do the finishing touches, then they know more about what's down there than anybody else. you got some more people coming in here. They should go down and land. Now, we may bring them back later, but at least that's the way one begins to get it out. And, and that is... Occupy, not visit. The other term is permanence. And in some ways you can establish permanence whenever you want. You stop occupying and you keep people there. Uh, It's confusing when you throw in the word settlement or colony. Uh, You know that it's going to grow to something. But 
you go and look at something and you come back and say, gee, that's a good place. I think we could live there. You may go again and pick out the spot and come back. Then you go. and uh, but, but it allows that flexibility. And I, and I think uh, because of what is required to bring back the first crew, the people have been trained knowing that the mission is going to be building up people. Now, the first people that go are in quite an honorable position. But we're going to bring them back, and the rest of them are going to stay. No, they're the ones. So, there's. do I want to be there? And, and the, is the president going to go down in history for sending people to Mars and they come back and they go to Mars and come back and by that time it's going to be another president and he sends people to Mars and they stay, okay? Now the guy who set up permanence is going to go down in history. This other guy just, why do it that way if it's if it's more economical? Buzz Aldrin, thank you very much indeed. And that's it for our Space Boffins special. Huge thanks go to Apollo and Gemini astronaut Buzz Aldrin for taking time out of a very busy schedule to talk to us. Space Boffins is a Boffin Media production supported by the Atrium Space Insurance Consortium and the Royal Astronomical Society in partnership with Naked Scientists. Do check us out on Facebook and Twitter. We'd love to hear from you. Thanks for listening.